Well, good evening. What a joy it is to be with you guys. I feel like there should be a trigger warning on the sanctuary about singing Christmas hymns before Thanksgiving. I'm not saying I'm more civilized than you guys, but there are rules. But our, uh, our passage this evening, we're going to be looking at Psalm 31, and we're going to be starting in Psalm 31. You'll find that on page 461 in your pew Bible, but we're also going to be flipping over to Matthew 23 and looking at verses 44 through 49. That's on page 884 of your pew Bible. So if you would first turn to Psalm 31, obviously we've been looking through messianic psalms, been looking at psalms that either point directly or indirectly to Christ. And uh, tonight we turn to one that is um, a, a unique psalm in the life of Jesus. It's a unique psalm in that we only ever see him using it once, and it is a very particular point, a very important point in his life. Let's first start in Psalm 31. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8 and verses 21 through 34, and then flipping over to Luke 23. So please give your attention to the reading of God's God's word, starting in Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Now jump down to verse 21. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Now, if you would jump over to page 884 in your pew Bible, and we're looking at Luke 23, going from verses 44 through 49. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Lessons, God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, by your word, you pluck up and you destroy, you break down, and yet you also build and you plant through the power of your word. Father, would you knock down the idols that we have in our heart through your word? Plant in us new life. Plant in us desire to serve you. Send your spirit, we pray, to give us hearts to hear, eyes to see, and um, hearts to imagine the good things that you have for us. We ask this in Christ's name. 
Amen. Well, many of y'all, perhaps my generation and older, may remember the most famous movie critic of all time, a guy named Roger Ebert. Some of y'all may remember him. He was always the guy, either two thumbs up or three or four stars. I never understood why he didn't go above four stars. I feel like the fifth star is the, the norm, but he always stopped at four. Well, Roger Ebert, as you may remember, I can't remember his partner in crime, but they reviewed probably every movie that came out from 1970 to the, or the late 2000s. And every time he would give his review, right, and it always made Rolling Stone or Variety or the front of the newspapers, Roger Ebert's word stood pure when it came to movies. And yet perhaps his most important words are his least known words, right? He's given his opinion on movies time and time again, and we listen to him, but you may not have heard about his last words. That is the words he wrote to his wife, scribbled on a piece of paper just before he passed away of cancer eight years ago. He had been in and out of a coma and they had struggled to get him home. And in his last days, he wrote his wife a note referencing this life that he was looking back on now and said these words, it's all an elaborate hoax. It's all an elaborate hoax, these things that I have done. There's actually a, a wonderful song by a guy named Clem Snide called Roger Ebert. I recommend you go and listen to it. But it's an all an elaborate hoax. And here we see this man who had reviewed all these movies, had everything he'd ever wanted, and he gets to the end of his life and he says, it's all a hoax. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, what would your last words be? Martin Luther famously, in a similar situation, scribbled on a piece of paper, half in Latin, half in German, we are beggars, this is true, the last words he would ever pen. Or what about, if, how would you act if you knew you were going to die? Right? If you knew you were going to die tomorrow, or two weeks, or three weeks from now, how would it change the way you live your life? Well, Christians, since really the first century, have been asking what it means to die well. What it means to die a virtuous death. And they, they pull a line from a guy named Cicero, who was a Roman philosopher and orator back in the um, early part of the, of the 80s. And here's what Cicero said. He said, the whole life of a philosopher is the meditation of his death. The whole life of a philosopher is the meditation of his death. And Christians, since the, since the turn of the, the millennia, the first century, have thought about education, about becoming a Christian, as teaching us how to die well. Part of the Christian education, part of learning, though we have forgotten it now in the 21st century, is learning what it means to die well. And in fact, there's a 15th century document that translates into the technique of dying or the skill of dying. And the, the first paragraph, it talks about how death waits for everyone. And its sudden nature makes it so that Satan uses those times to pull you away from God. Right? It's when you come face to face with death that Satan tries to pull you away from God. And here's what it says, this technique for dying, that it is very important that everyone should have before their eyes the art of dying, and they should turn it over in their minds, their final illness. That Christians should ponder what it will be like when we finally come face to face with death. And as we learn to die well, we also learn to live well, 
that we learn to live well. And in fact, we could say it takes learning how to die well in order to learn how to live well. Great. Southern author Wendell Berry, in his novel Hannah Coulter, says that death is a sort of lens. Though I used to think of it as a wall or a shut door, it changes things and makes them clear. Death clarifies, it brings things into focus that we have never, things we had never thought before. Very simply, we could say death brings into clear focus the things we truly value. Death brings into clear focus the things we, t- we truly value. And our psalm this evening, Psalm 31, found its way onto the lips of our Lord as he faced death face to face. In fact, this psalm has found its way onto the lips of many characters throughout the Bible. All in times of despair. We have David here in Psalm 31. We have Jonah pulling lines from the psalm. We see Jeremiah pulling lines from the psalm. We even have another psalmist in Psalm 71 beginning his psalm with the same words that Psalm 31 begins. In fact, even later, after the time of Jesus, so in the sec- uh, after 70 AD, we see that Psalm 31.5, the verse under consideration tonight, would really become a a, a prayer, a, a night prayer for children and their families. Right, time and time again, this psalm has been used to remind people of their death, remind people of what is coming. However, I say, while all these other history, historical characters have used this psalm, the most notable person, as we've already seen, is our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, as he hung on the cross. As he hangs there, the last words that he will utter on the, on, before his entrance into glory were these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now there are different types of messianic psalms. Right? We've seen the whole gamut up till now. There are those that directly predict a coming Messiah. We think of something like Psalm 2, Psalm 45, Psalm 110. But then there are those that only seem to have one or two lines that point to Christ. And that's the situation that we have here before us. It seems that if Christ hadn't used this line, Psalm 31.5, it would be fair to ask, well, does this apply to Christ at all? Well, I want to give you guys, before we jump into the sermon, a little tool, I think, that can help us read the Psalms, thinking about how Christ used the Psalms. And it's a, it's a little tool, it's a, got a fancy word, it's called metalepsis. Metalepsis. And what metalepsis is, it's a, it's a way of reading texts where, you know, so Jesus uses this one line from this psalm, and in order to understand what Jesus is actually saying, we've got to go back and look at the whole context of this psalm. Right? We've got to go back and look at the whole context of the psalm and then use that context that we found in that psalm to help us determine how Jesus was using it in Luke 23. So as we go forward, let's take a brief look at the psalm itself, and then we're going to really jump into Luke 23 and think about how Christ is using this psalm. So just briefly, as you saw in the the verses that we read, it's a psalm of lament, and yet at the same time, it's a psalm of trust, right? It's It's a psalm where David recognizes the trouble that he is in, and yet at the same time recognizes that there is a God whom he can trust. And many commentators see it as 
what they call the cry of a righteous sufferer. The cry of a righteous sufferer. So it's someone who himself has not done any wrong, and in fact he will talk about how he loves the Lord and he himself is a righteous one, and yet finds himself in the midst of enemies, finds himself in the midst of suffering. And really the whole psalm is this back and forth between remembering what God has done and requesting God's future mercies. So this is back and forth, right, all the way throughout. However, verses 19 through 24 end in a different key. 19 through 24 ends with clear statements of God's faithfulness, and then the whole psalm switches persons, right? So the psalmist has been talking to God, David has been talking to God and about himself in the second person, the singular, and then in verses 21 through 24, he switches to the plural, right? He turns and speaks to the congregation. Now, taking the context then of the righteous sufferer, one who stands before God as one calling on him in trust, we can say that then Christ is the true righteous sufferer. He is the only one that we can actually say was a fully righteous sufferer. And he's a righteous sufferer who fully entrusts himself to the Father. He fully entrusts his spirit into his Father's hands. However, he also gives us that same spirit that we might trust our Heavenly Father who gives us all things. So very briefly, we're going to look at just those three things. Christ's trust, Christ's spirit that he gives to us, and then in turn, our trust that we can now give in return to the Lord, our Lord and Savior. So first, Christ's trust. As I said, the first thing that we see in this passage with Jesus using this in Luke 23 is that he is the righteous sufferer who fully trusted his Father. He was the man who had done no wrong and yet suffered all wrong, and throughout it all, he trusted his heavenly father. And Luke gives us a sort of um, a, a, a picture, an interpretation of this through a centurion. Right? We see there in 23 verse 47, the centurion, seeing what takes place, praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Certainly this man was innocent. And the Greek word there, though, isn't just innocent, it's righteous, right? It's dikaios, that word that talks about the right standing before God, the one who had broken no laws. So we see that the centurion really speaks more than he knows, right? It's like the centurion in Mark 15 who cries out saying, surely this one, this Jesus, was the Son of God. This centurion speaks more than he knows, Jesus was fully righteous. In fact, we can say he kept the law perfectly in a way that no one else had. And yet he suffered like no one else had. But we can also say that this wasn't the first time Jesus had prayed this psalm. To our best guess, right? We obviously don't see him in the rest of the Gospels using this line. But by the time Jesus had come around into the first century A.D., there had been, become a, a, a tradition that developed, now we call them the synagogues, right, that developed when they were in Babylon in the 6th century BC. And central to synagogue worship, 
in the, in the Jewish religion then was the constant repetition of the Psalms, right? So if you were to go look in a Hebrew text of the Psalms, you would see that all the Psalms are broken up that really you can read them throughout the whole course of a year, right? So just like many of us have Bible reading plans, so the first century Jew would have had a Bible reading plan in the synagogue where year in and year out they would have sang the Psalms back to God as worship. So Jesus would have grown up seeing this psalm. He would have said it time and time and time again. And we can think that in a text like this, in Psalm 31.5, that it was through psalms like this that he learned who he was. Jesus learned that he was one who would have to commit himself fully to the Father. And in the repetition of psalms, in the singing of the psalms, he learned who his identity was, what his identity was. And he learned that his whole life was one that was entrusted to the Father. And here we see that cry uttered for the very last time. And we can think that all those times that he had said it in the synagogue before, perhaps even by his time it had developed as a nighttime prayer, so we can imagine perhaps a little baby Jesus, young boy Jesus, right, saying this prayer before he went to sleep. All those times on the Sabbath and the evenings when he would say this prayer was a time of practice, right? It was a time of preparation for the time when he would say this for the last time. It was a time where he learned obedience in the constant repetition of this psalm awaiting the day when he would say it for the last time on the cross. And here's, I'm, I'm gonna dive into a little, a little nitpicky point here, all right? We, there's been, there's talk before that theology is done with prepositions, right? And there's someone who once said that covenant theology, the bedrock of our Reformed faith, is a theology based on personal pronouns. But I also think that we can say that theology is built on verb tenses, Everyone's favorite topic, grammar. Theology is built on verb tenses. Now, in Psalm 31.5, obviously that was Hebrew when it was written, and the Hebrew has it in the tense of the imperfect, the imperfect tense. All right, and the imperfect could be anything, really, almost anything. It could be future, it could be present, it could be a present response to something that just happened. Basically, it means that the action that is taking place has not yet been accomplished fully. So you can see there's a sort of elasticity to the imperfect tense in Hebrew. However, in the Septuagint, as I believe Dean mentioned last week, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint takes this word and puts it into the future. Right? So they have David saying, I will trust, I will put my spirit with the Lord, right? I will commit my spirit to the Lord. However, Luke, when he comes and he writes this text, when Jesus says this line on the cross, he doesn't say it in the future tense. He says it in the present tense. It's not, I will commit my spirit. It is, I am committing my spirit right now. However, there's a little nuanced point about the present in the Greek language. In, our, in English, right, we say the present tense, I run, and it's right now I'm running, right? I'm running right now. 
Well, in the Greek, it also has this sense of it's something that has taken place continuously all throughout his life. Right? Time and time again, Jesus trusted his father. It's a present continuous act, something that Jesus did his entire life entrusting his spirit to the father. And yet we see that as he entrusted his spirit to the father, he entrusted it with the full hope, in fact, the full assurance that he would receive it back. The psalmist in Psalm 31 repeats his point in, from verse five in verses 14 through 16 when he says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. So Jesus entrusted his spirit to the Father knowing that one day the Father would cause his face to shine upon him. Right? Knowing that he would receive it back. He gave up his spirit to the Father knowing, hoping, trusting, being fully assured that the Father would give it back. And what's so fascinating about this prayer of Jesus is that it comes right after another cry, one that Luke doesn't tell us about, one that you have to go to the book of Mark to find, where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Mark even actually hints at this last cry of Luke by saying, Jesus said these lines, and then he let out a loud voice, and then he perished. However, Luke tells us what that second cry is. It's, here, into your hands I commit my spirit. So here is Jesus, the righteous sufferer, the one whose entire life has been entrusting himself to God. And in one breath he can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in the same breath, two seconds later, say, yet I trust in you. He's gone from abandoned by God to still hoping and trusting in God. Can you imagine that level of faith, that level of trust? None of us will ever have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we can always trust our Father. We can always trust our Heavenly Father. And here we turn now to our second point. See, Jesus is trusting his Father with his spirit. However, if we look beyond a simple textual reading, if we stand outside and look at it from a redemptive historical aspect, we see that there's something more going on here. In fact, we can say that Christ is not only entrusting his Father with his spirit, but he's entrusting his Father with the spirit with the hope, with the expectation that the Father will then give that spirit to us. Right? That he will then give that spirit to us. And there are some textual clues that point to this. Right? So if you look back in Luke 23, verse 44 through 45, we see that there are cosmic things happening. Right? So the sixth hour, that's about 12 p.m., 
to the ninth hour, it's about 3 p.m., it was dark, right? Wild stuff is happening. And not only that, but the curtain of the temple was torn. That great veil that hung in the temple separating all of the Gentiles from the, and the people of God from the entrance into God's presence was ripped from top to bottom. And we see earlier in the prophets that these are signs that something is happening. That these are signs that something is happening. So in Joel 2.30, verses, uh, two, chapter, excuse me, Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 31 Joel tells us that in the day of the Lord, when the, day, when the Lord visits his people, that there would be darkness. That darkness would come upon the earth. But that's not all it, that Joel prophesies. Joel also tells us that there would be a day on that day when the Lord came, that the Lord would pour out his spirit. Right? The Lord would pour out his spirit and then if you flip to Zechariah 13.1, we see on that day, that great day of the Lord, that there shall be a fountain opened from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So here we see Jesus entrusting his spirit to the Father with the expectation, knowing that the Father will then give that spirit to his people. Give that spirit to you. Obviously that is fulfilled at Pentecost. Right? But here we see Jesus beginning to work through his people, beginning to pour out his spirit on his people. This was more than just Jesus entrusting his spirit into the hands of the Father. But we might also see it as the spirit of God flowing from the true temple of God onto his people. Here we see Jesus giving his spirit back into the hands of his father, expecting, knowing, awaiting the day when his father would hand it back to him. And then he in turn would turn and pour out his spirit upon us. And something happens to us when we receive his spirit, right? Something happens to us we're made alive, we're made new, we're made like Christ. So we can say, thirdly, that Jesus gave up his spirit for one reason, for one reason, that we might share in it. That we might share in his spirit and trust our heavenly father with the same trust that Jesus trusted his father so very quickly, our trust. We see after Jesus speaks these words in Luke 23 that there's a pattern that emerges in God's people of entrusting their spirit unto the Father. We see first in Acts 7.59, Stephen, that first deacon who is stoned by Saul, crying out to God, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then we see 1 Peter 4.19, Peter turns and tells to everyone, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So this is a, an attitude in trusting our souls. 
It's an attitude that is passed down from Christ to his people. It is an attitude that is given to us by Christ's own spirit. So we must be careful not to recognize or to think that this is my own can-do attitude. Right? I am so holy, I am so trusting that I can trust my Father through everything. No, this comes from the power of the Spirit and the Spirit alone. And the, 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 the title of this sermon comes from a George Herbert poem called The Hold Fast. The Hold Fast. And another line from that poem says, Then will I trust, said I, in him alone. Nay, even to trust in him was also his. We must confess that nothing is our own. So even the spirit that we have of trusting the Father, trusting God, comes from his own spirit. And while we can recognize that, we can also ask ourselves, how much do we trust the Father? How much do we trust God with the things of our life? In fact, this Psalm 31.5 points us to another psalm, right? Psalm 90.12, that we, the, we see the psalmist crying out to God, teach me to number my days. Teach me to number my days. And we see through Psalm 31.5, through Psalm 90.12, through Jesus' use of, of this psalm in Psalm 23, that everything is a gift from our Father in heaven who asks us to now entrust those things back to him. Everything is a gift from our Father who asks us to entrust them back to him. And I don't think it's any mistake that the two times we see this idea of someone entrusting their spirit is in the context of death. We have Jesus quoting it here. We had Stephen in Acts 7. And even in 1 Peter, it's in the context of extreme suffering. So here we see the limits to our trust. Right? It has to be a trust that goes all the way to the grave. A trust that says, Father, I am trusting you even if it costs me my life. Even if I give up everything and it causes me harm, death, whatever it might be, still I trust you. And this is not a cosmic trust fall, right? This is not just an exercise that God calls us to. No, this is a deep recognition of a God who loves us. A God who cares for us. A God who gives us all things that we might return them back to him. So then returning to my question at the start. What does it mean to die well? What does it mean to die well? Well, dying well means living a life fully entrusted to the Father. Fully entrusted to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ knowing that he calls each of us one day to face that great specter, death. Knowing that each of us will stand face to face with that last enemy, death, 
whether it means tomorrow, whether it means next week, whether it means 50 years from now, and yet trusting that the Lord will give you your life back. Trusting that though you face death, death is not the end. Dying well means a life which has learned to say time and time and time again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Knowing that our Lord will not abandon you to the grave, but will in fact make his face shine upon you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that we would see your face shining upon us. Lord, draw us in, cause us to trust the sovereign things that you have for us. Lord, give us courage and confidence even unto the grave. Lord, would you teach us again and again and again that all things are more ours by being yours. We ask this in Christ's mighty and matchless name. Amen.